so we are a new small church plant just going on three or four months. Um, we're nothing special. Alexander, I have no idea what we're doing. Um, but man, we have a great group of people. We have an awesome community and um, we're so thankful for you to be here tonight. Uh, one thing that we do specifically, um, not that the Christian Mission Alliance, the CMA, the denomination that we are under does, but one thing we do is expository preaching, where we pick a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we do this for the purpose that we will stay true to the context. Rather than having a topic and find scripture to go along with it, we, we go start with scripture, and that's our launching pad into the message. Um, so that's something that we do. Uh, so we're in Romans 15 today, verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to break it up into uh, three main sections. Uh, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to call it self-denial. We're going to look at the self-denial of self in order to please others. Verses 3 and 4, we're going to look at the example of Christ, as Christ self-denied himself for the sake of uh, being obedient to his Father, and how he's the perfect example of this. And then lastly, verses 5, 6, and 7, we're going to look how conformity into the image of Christ brings unity and glory to God. Um, so before we dive into Romans 15, it still is kind of extending and building on the concept of what Romans 14 talked about. And so I, I believe Alexander led us through the entire chapter of Romans 14 over three or four weeks. So I kind of want to recap um, what it's talking about and why it's important now. Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Rome. That's why it's called Romans. And one thing that's happening a lot here is there's a lot of Jews and there's a lot of Gentiles um, mixing and new in the faith. And so Paul's talking about Christian liberty, that in Christ we now have freedom to do as we please, um, that we are bought, we are free from the law, and now we have this newfound freedom in Christ, um, a freedom to walk in obedience to God, but also not let any... Uh, standards, any laws, any rules of the world necessarily be pushed down upon us. Like it's God's law and nothing else. Um, and so how it's labeled here is there's the strong believer and there's the weak believer. And it's based off of the, this freedom that we have. And so the example that we used was, I like drinking alcohol and Alexander doesn't. And so for the sake of this example, I would be the strong believer because in my freedom, I I, um, I absorb, I, I'm able to uh, fulfill my desires, seek to uh, the pleasures of the world. Where Alexander, based off his own conscience, based off, off his own conviction, limits himself. And so thus, he would be considered a weaker brother, where I would be considered a stronger brother. And it's important to realize that this is an in-house. Um, it's not uh, Christians and non-Christians. It's, it's Christians all the same. Jews and Gentiles who have put their faith into Christ that um, Paul is talking about here. And what they're disagreeing on is a tertiary issue, which is like a, a third degree, third level issue. It's not a gospel issue. Um, we can go throughout all of Paul's letters and see whenever a gospel issue comes up, when something explicit, whether it's works-based or they're um, taking away the divinity of Christ, Paul has this very aggressive and harsh language used for people when it's a gospel issue. But here, this is in-house, it's a tertiary issue, um, and so thus it's handled properly. And so one thing that Paul does really well in Romans 14, he doesn't necessarily talk about who's right or who's wrong, rather than just identifying what it is. But rather, he talks a lot about how to coexist with one another, how that they are to live in harmony with one another and to serve um, Christ. 
So with that being said, we carry on from Romans 14 into Romans 15, and we see um, right in the beginning of verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So we see this, the same language. Paul saying we, identifying himself as a strong brother, um, and the obligation they have to help the weaker brother. And so it's, it's really, uh, you don't have to look hard to find how self-absorbed our culture is how so many people want power, they want influence. I was just, um, today on Instagram, I had like three suggested friends and all of them were separate accounts that like my friends made from like, for like their cooking or their workout or they like trying to like have a social influencer account. And I, I think even myself, like, I find that like I want to be seen, I want to be known, I want to be put into powers of positions of power and have influence, have a say in people's lives. And unfortunately, I think this runs true um, throughout the entire culture. And actually, I, I read a study this past week that um, when 61% of Americans, when asked what is the purpose of man, what is the purpose of your life, they say is to, to please their internal desires. And that's how they find fulfillment. But the scary thing is when Christians were asked, quote-unquote, born-again Christians were asked, 51% of them would agree with that, that the, the purpose of uh, our lives is, a, is to, find, to find fulfillment and pleasing our internal desires. Um, but it doesn't, all throughout Scripture, we see the consistent teaching of self-denial, of self-sacrificing. And I don't, it's interesting because I've had a lot of conversations with people that, you don't deny yourself, that God created you in such a way that whatever you feel, whatever intrinsic, intrinsic desires you have must be from God, thus must be acted upon and can glorify God, even if they go against God's word. But I mean, if we look from Abraham, Abraham, Abraham was told to wait, to be patient, denied himself and trusting the Lord to provide a son. Think about Moses fasted 40 days before he received the commandments. Jesus saying to pick up your cross and follow him daily. Uh, Paul going to use the extreme language of crucifying your flesh, that your intrinsic desires need to be self-denied. And so this teaching is seen throughout Scripture, um, that although we would love for things to be all about us and to do what we feel is right, we must deny ourselves. And it's no different here um, for the stronger brother. And so to explain what it means for stronger brother, I think all of us are the stronger believer in some way, shape, or form, and maybe in different seasons or in different relationships. Because the, the idea of being stronger is that you're more mature and you're wiser. And there will always be more, God willing, there will always be new Christians. There will always be babies in the faith who don't understand um, the scripture or the word. Um, and God willing, we'll always be growing. We'll always be maturing in our faith, knowing more. And thus, like, we'll Hopefully, we are always going to be stronger, and there will always be people that we're associating with, that we are friends with, that are weaker, that are under us. And so that's kind of what Paul is addressing here, is that the strong are, are the wise and mature. Um, so we're all considered that. And so what is the role of the strong brother when it comes to the weaker? Uh, Paul says that we are obligated. Um, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so it's not just so much to to put up with or just accept the weaker brother, 
but we are obligated to bear with the weaker brother. And the imagery here is used that we would stoop down to, I don't want to say stoop down to their level, but come down upon their level, and whatever burden, whatever load they are carrying, um, based off the, the conviction of their conscience that they say is wrong, that we would carry that with them, that we would come under that weight and share that weight with them and walk with them in that. And that we are obligated. It's not, a, um, it's not accepting. It's not just a putting up with, but that we are obligated and that we would do this. And the, the failings, um, from what I've been able to read, the commentary say that's not like the best word for it. It would be like the weakness of the weak. Not necessarily the failings of the weak. That's a little, little more stronger in negative connotation, but the weakness of the weak, that what they are struggling with, what they are going through, we would come alongside and carry that with them. Um, so there's a common saying that love is blind, that when we feel love, it causes us to do stupid, stupid things and um, walk blindly in a way that we can't explain our actions. But from what scripture teaches, like love is not blind. Like, love is actually visibly seeing someone. It is visibly knowing someone from their best day to their worst day. And it's the same with this, uh, this picture that's being painted, that if we, are, if we are considered strong, we are obligated to walk with the weaker brother and to help them. We need to know like, who our weaker brother and sisters are, and we need to know what their weaknesses are. And so this is kind of a plug for men's and women's group where, you know, we, Saturday mornings we come together and we confess our sins and we ask each other tough questions to hold each other accountable. But at the same time, you know, if it's me this week who's struggling, next week it's Alexander or next week it's someone else. But also they know where I struggle. They know where I fall short. They know what's coming up in my life that maybe temptation is going to creep in and cause me to stumble. And so they're able to ask me these tough questions, to come alongside, to carry my burden with me in order for me to tackle whatever issue may be um, presenting itself. But also, not only is love not blind, and when we go to 1 Corinthians 13, which I'm sure a lot of us have been to weddings and heard it, the first thing how, that love is described is love is patient. So it's easy for us to go for a season of saying, okay, we're gonna help, I'm going to help the weaker brother, my weaker brother or sister, for this month, or I'm going to walk with them for a, a solid weekend or something like that. But how often we want to give up, how often we get tired or worrisome, we get so frustrated with them that they keep falling into um, the same problem, the same sin, or they can't overcome whatever their conscience has limited them to. Um, and so love is patient, and that is consistent with what uh, Paul teaches. And so it would be easy to disregard them and not sacrifice our freedoms. Because verse 1, it finishes, bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. You know, naturally we want to please ourselves. If we're hungry, we want to eat. If we want to go do something fun, we go do something fun. Um, but the idea with a stronger brother, if you have more freedom, you're limiting your freedom for the sake of helping the weaker brother. And that is, can be a discomfort, a disconvenience um, at times. Uh, but... When we are called to help someone in need, it's amazing. I, I think it's a great reflection as to how selfish we can be in the sense of seeking our own uh, pleasures over the sake of our brother. 
And so it's also important that if we find ourselves to be a stronger brother, which we, I think we all would, given a different time, scenario, situation. Um, so it, if you'd like this, it's important that we not encourage feelings of pride or that we flaunt our freedom in a manner that would be offensive to the weak, um, but must take upon ourselves as, it, as they were for our own sake. So being, trying to help someone, being the stronger brother, It'd be really simple to think like, oh, I'm stronger. You should be like me. You should imitate me. You should take my advice. When what Paul is saying that we actually come down to their level, meet them where they're at, and whatever way they're struggling, and we carry that with them. We walk with them. And also, we don't flaunt our freedom, where if I think drinking alcohol is okay, I'm not convicted by it, I don't think it's a sin, I don't go around a brother or sister who thinks that and flaunt that I'm drinking or I'm having a beer. Um, So we must be very cautious and aware, and this goes back to knowing our brother and sister on a more intimate and vulnerable level. That only comes through exposing yourself um, through people in the church. So again, uh, it's not to please ourselves. Matthew Henry has this quote, Christianity is designed to soften and meeken the spirit, to teach us the art of obliging and true compliance, not to be servants to the lust of any, but to the necessities and infirmities of our brethren. That as we are growing in our faith, that as we are understanding scripture, and as we are walking in obedience, we're not becoming servants to the lust of the world or any pride or anything sin that um, comes about, but rather we are uh, enslaving our spirits to the point where we're not pleasing ourselves, but rather we are pleasing our fellow brother and sisters in Christ. And then it goes on in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And so again, this neighbor, let us please his neighbor, is not talking about um, like Christian, believer and non-believer, but rather it's talking about Believers is still in house talking about a stronger brother and a weaker brother. Um, I think it's confusing because you read neighbor and you think that's Paul talking about a non believer because we're immersed in the world. But I think it shows the intimacy that we should have as a church that to call a believer a neighbor, that the idea that you're doing life together, maybe even potentially living um, together or close together or side by side. And so with the freedom that we have, um, purchased by Christ and walking with Christ, there are three questions that we must ask, according to Paul, as to how we are using our freedom. How are we using this freedom, a gift from God, in order to glorify and worship him? And so based off 1 Corinthians 6 and 10, um, there's these three questions. Um, with, with what I'm doing with my time, with what my actions are reflecting, is it helpful? Uh, is it addictive? And is it loving? So the first question, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So is it helpful for me to reach my goal? That what I'm pursuing, that what I'm spending my time, that what I'm working towards, is it helpful for not only me, but for my fellow believers and for the church and for God's kingdom? Um, The second question is, uh, is it addictive? And so are you pursuing something? Are you doing something that is controlling you? Am I being controlled by something I am doing in my freedom? Um, unfortunately, we, we can see a lot of this with some great, uh, we'll say, heroes of the faith who, who fall short, 
who um, something comes out about them and they had some kind of uh, money issue or, or um, personality problem or anger issue or something like that, is that things that they were pursuing for good motives, for right reasoning, gain control of them. That they, it, they somewhere along the road let that thing to get the best of them. Um, so is it addictive in the sense that it will not only limit your freedom, but also, I don't want to say take away your freedom, but um, you're abusing the freedom the Lord has given you to pursue sin when he has given you the freedom to pursue himself and to further his kingdom. Um, and then lastly, is this activity showing love to someone else? Again, Paul says that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are loving. And the idea that with our freedom that the Lord has given, we will be pursuing uh, loving not only God, like choosing actions, discipline, to love God, to pursue the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, but also to love our neighbor as ourselves, um, making those necessities and actions and part of our lives. And it says here in verse 2 that uh, let us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, to edify him. Uh, we please our neighbor not just by walking with him, our, our weaker brother, but by edifying, by building them up. Uh, and not only does this just help the weaker brother, it also helps the church. You know, if an uh, analogy that I found is the closer uh, the stones lie, if we are each a stone that we are building a church, the closer the stones lie, and the better they are squared, the better they are sharpened, the better they are pruned, um, the better they are squared to fit one another, the stronger the building. And so that, the saying that um, we are only as strong as our weakest link is true even in the church to some extent. That as we engage with our weaker brother, as we are there for them, as we build them up, as we empower them, then the church becomes stronger. I've already been able to see this in, in our men's accountability group where guys come to the table now and are more confident and willing to give advice, to ask me the tough questions, to push back against me. Um, to hold me accountable. And so this is the idea of being a stronger brother, using your freedom well to help the weaker brother. Because not only are you um, giving them more freedom to walk with Christ, but also it's edifying, it's building up the church. It's making God's bride um, more beautiful. And so a self-reflection question is, um, how are you using your freedom to not build yourself up, to not please your own desires, but to build up the body of Christ, to edify the body of Christ. Uh, verses 3 and 4. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who, who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the Yeah, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And so uh, here in verse 3, Paul is quoting from Psalm 69.9, and it's, it's David who is speaking here. But Paul is showing that this is uh, David writing with Christ in mind. And this verse shows that is Christ's entire life, everything Christ did, and all of his freedom, and all his opportunity, and all the power he had as the God-man, he pursued nothing but selflessness. Nothing he did was for own selfish desires or to please himself. And even in John, he says, um, I have come to do only the will of my Father. That, that, that is what, who Christ was, and that is exactly what he embodied. 
And um, I can go to the well-known passage in Philippians 2. I'll, I'll read it real quick just because it's just icing on the cake, um, this, this idea, this concept of Christ and his life and his ministry. But he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So this idea of selflessness and Jesus humbling himself, um, you can think about him being born in a manger, in a, in, yeah, in a manger of the low of the lows. The wasn't a hotel, wasn't a palace, wasn't fit for a king. Um, but yet was a man to show that there's no um, level of society, no rich, no, no prince, no, um, to, no hierarchy that could, that's untouchable um, for him. You think about him being at the age of 12 when he stayed behind from his parents at the temple to do his, um, to do his father's will. He wanted to be in his father's house. Again, just a selflessness to serve the Lord and please the Lord. Uh, from healings and fasting, um, time and time in Scripture says that he had no place to lay his head. Um, he went from one city to the place not knowing where he would sleep, um, and even to uh, washing the disciples' feet, his disciples' feet, and even Judas, the one who would betray him. And obviously the, the pinnacle of the selflessness of Christ would be that Christ being the exemplifier of the stronger brother, walking in full freedom, that he would bear the the weight the burden of the weaker brother and that would be us and our sin that not having to but yet obligated chose to to bear our sin and to being the perfect sacrifice upon the cross die in our place uh, a death that we deserved um, due to our sin due to our falling out um, with god and he would bear our sin and overcome it, die in our place, um, and be resurrected and set us free, that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. So again, just all of Christ's life is selflessness, is to serve the Father, to be obedient to his will, and thus to serve us um, alongside with it. And another great example of this is the Garden of Gethsemane, where, where he knew what laid before him, uh, the, the worst death penalty in all of history that he would have to go through, that he would have to endure. And he asked the Lord to take this cup from him. He said, um, uh, he asked the Lord to take the cup from him. And he says, uh, if there's any other way, please do it. But if not, your will be done. And so even then, still in selflessness. And this is why we take communion in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, in his obedience, in his pleasing of the Father and satisfying his wrath, but also in the bringing and purchasing us as sons and daughters. And I hope every time we take communion, um, that's what we reflect on. Uh, verse 4, for whatever was written former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we, we might have hope. 
Um, last year, Andrew came and preached. Uh, last week, not last year. Last week, Andrew came and preached, and he did a wonderful job. And I'm thankful to say that we have it recorded, and we can go listen to it um, on the website if you weren't here for it. But basically, he took this one verse and went through the entire Old Testament and talked about all of it is referring to Christ, how all of it is looking towards Christ, um, and how, unfortunately, there's this, uh, this mindset, this understanding that has kind of invaded into like, the Christian uh, worldview that Old Testament is kind of like a second-tier uh, testament, where New Testament is elevated. But I thought Andrew did a wonderful job of um, just showing the importance and the richness of the Old Testament. And I, just to echo what he said, um, just with one point, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And when Paul's writing this, he's not thinking about the New Testament. The New Testament isn't written then. He's thinking specifically about the Old Testament. And if Paul says this, and Jesus thought it was worthy to, to do his teaching um, with the Old Testament and to bring about his kingdom, then I think it would be foolish for us to downplay or to not hold the Old Testament rightly in our eyes and to study it and to live in it and be in it, even though it might not be as easy as the New Testament. And also, it's why is the Old Testament sufficient for all these things that Paul has said in Second Timothy? And it's because it has everything to do with Christ. Although we don't see Christ necessarily explicitly there as we do like in the Gospels and as Paul uh, referencing Christ as he did in Philippians 2, uh, it very much is shadowing um, types, archetypes of who Christ is. In every passage, uh, every chapter in the Old Testament, we can find Christ within it. So even though it takes a little bit more digging, I can't help but to say that the Lord will reward you in your digging and blessing you and uh, a wisdom and understanding of it that can only come from him. So what does scripture do? Um, first and foremost is for our instruction. Uh, it says in Jeremiah 10.10, 10, the way of man is not within himself, uh, but rather, Lord, like you command the steps of, of man. And so we need uh, instruction. We need guidance. And in a lot of ways, I love the saying that scripture is a manual for life, that it reveals God and it shows us and leads us and teaches us of how we can walk in obedience to him. Um, and I think it would be very foolish for us to say, if God gave us a way to live our lives, to walk in obedience in a way that pleases him, um, we'd be very foolish to, to try to do otherwise or to try to, in our own wisdom, uh, walk and, and go through this life. Because, uh, so scripture gives us examples to follow, and we can look at Old Testament saints and mimic them because this is what Jesus does too. Just as all the authors, all the saints in the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of them. But also we need instruction um, and guidance and wisdom because life isn't easy. Um, I, I think about the analogy that life is just one big struggle, and absolutely there are mountaintop experiences and and uh, great, great times, but more than not, there's, there's tough times, there's struggles, there's hardships, there's trials, there's sufferings. Um, and that's just because we live in a fallen world. You know? No one goes without facing these. Without, and it's not necessarily that we even bring these upon ourselves. You know? Jesus living a perfect life, not sinless, still face betrayal. He still face sufferings and hardships um, and knows what it means. And so 
It gives us instruction because, secondly, it also gives us uh, endurance. So endurance, you know, we don't endure through a good time. We enjoy a good time. But endurance is referring to the, the struggle of life, that when these trials, hardships, sufferings, persecutions do come our way, um, the Lord has not failed us. The Lord has not abandoned us. But rather in Scripture, just as he has been with all of his saints, just as he has uh, proven himself faithful, we too can endure. And we too can also be encouraged. Um, so there are 7,487 promises in Scripture made between God and man. And not a single one of them has failed. Not a single one of them has failed. So if God gives us instruction through his word, and endurance, and encouragement through scriptures, it goes on to say, uh, through endurance, and through encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. And this is our only hope, that what God has said in scripture, and what he has fulfilled. So again, this is Paul, when he's writing this, he's referring mostly He's referring actually only to the Old Testament. And he's doing that because the New Testament readers can see the promises God made and how they are being fulfilled in their day. That the Messiah has come. They, they can see the promises of God bringing in the kingdom. And so the same thing's true for us today. Now, all of these um, 7,500 promises between God and man aren't all for us today. Like Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, Not necessarily for us today. But there, are, there is a rich richness in the New Testament of promises God has made for his people, of people purchased by the blood of Christ that we can rest in. That just as in the Old Testament when God gave direction and empowered his people to endure through everything they went through and encouraged them even in it, same way for us today. We have instruction, we have guidance, we have the example of Christ of how to live our lives, how to follow and we can know we can endure, and we can be encouraged in and through it, because our hope is, just as the Lord fulfilled the Old Testament, he will one day fully fulfill the New Testament. Of course, he's doing it day by day, and it's not fully fulfilled yet, but upon Christ coming back and him redeeming and taking back his bride, we can rest, and that is our, that's our one and only hope. Um, because if you think about it, man, what, what hope do you have without Christ, when you're going through a suffering, child, hardship, trial, whatever, I said that twice, um, what hope do you have that it would come to an end? Like, what could encourage you to go through it? What can possibly give you the strength to endure it? And so as, as Christians, like, our, our only hope is Christ and the Lord's faithfulness and his goodness that what well, he's done once, he'll again do again. And so my self-reflection for these two verses is how often do you meditate on the promises of God and his faithfulness? Because again, like I said, not all these promises are for us for today, but there, there's a good chunk of them found within every book of the New Testament that is. Uh, so moving on to verses 5 and 6. Uh, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Paul tells us what uh, Scripture does, what the Word of God does, 
but then he directly accredits it to God. It is God who actually empowers us, who encourages us, who gives us the strength to, to um, not only overcome uh, what this world may uh, throw at us, but also live in harmony. That uh, whatever community, whatever um, good things we might have it is a blessing from the Lord. James 3 says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. I think it's actually two. But um, the, the Lord in his goodness blesses us, and it's by him that we receive these great things. Because if it's something that we did, something that we earned, something that we worked for, we could take partial pride. We, we could take credit for. And thus we rob God of his glory that is only deserving to him and him alone. Um, so yeah, not by our own strength, but by God and God's alone. And the, the beauty is, uh, so the more patient and comfort we receive from God, the better uh, disposition we are, the better disposed we are to love one another. So as, again, so as we suffer well, and as we turn to Scripture for encouragement, for endurance, for instruction as to how to handle it, and we put our hope in Christ, the Lord rewards us. He teaches us um, patience. He teaches, he gives us comfort. You know, patience is a virtue that, unfortunately, you have to be impatient before you become patient, you know? And so, in order to bear one another, to carry one another's burdens, to love one another well, we need to learn patience and how to, in, in a way, put up with each other, just as any family does. Um, and so, the Lord does that through the um, the sufferings that would come that are inedible in this life from the world. Um, and he uses that so that what the, the conformity of our image of ourselves into Christ, we can thus come and truly be the body of believers that he has called us to, to love one another well and to do ministry and life together, to hold each other accountable, to further God's kingdom, um, to worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, so as we are conformed, through self-denial, through not pleasing ourselves, but through pleasing our brothers and sisters, uh, two things happen. And the first thing is, is unity, and the second thing is God is glorified in it. And so I think about John 17. This is uh, Jesus' prayers for his, for his disciples then and his followers even now. And you see the, these two aspects, unity and God's glory, go hand in hand in what Jesus is asking what he's praying. So I'm going to read uh, a couple of verses for it. Uh, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that, these all, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me be before the foundation of the world. So again, you see this, this promise, this prayer that Jesus is asking of unity, and a perfect unity. Now, obviously, we're, we're far from perfect unity um, on this side of eternity, but one day we know it will be fulfilled. But nonetheless, day by day, it is being fulfilled. The Lord is answering that, that prayer of Jesus, that promise 
um, to us and giving us unity um, as well as God being glorified in it. And so here uh, in verse 5, when it talks about to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ, um, this idea of harmony, this this the same-mindedness, this agreement, it's not the idea that we're all going to be completely in agreement. That, you know, if, if you ask Alexander one question and you ask Hannah another, a tertiary issue, they might disagree, which kind of did last night, ironically, in, in some of the conversation we were having. But, but nonetheless, that's not the, um, the oneness, the harmony that Paul's talking about here. It's talking about that we will be uh, in unity and oneness and harmony towards the working towards the furthering of God's kingdom and the pursuing of the Lord. Um, so obviously there's a lot of tertiary issues that I think sometimes the church can make a big deal about. Um, I think about when we talk theology, we talk about Calvinism, Arminianism. We talk about whether you should dress up in a suit and tie when you preach or when communion is taken, how often communion is taken, worship styles. Um, you know, some people like a lot of lights and you'll see we don't like anything really. <laughs> um, but, but then there are even some issues that are, like I think about there are, um, like AME is the African Methodist, uh, AME, African Methodist, is it Episcopal? I actually don't know. Maybe I should have known that before I said it. But um, sometimes we divide on race. Like there's entire churches of like just race or just even culture. And that's not what um, Christ here is necessarily referring to in the sense of being like one accord with Christ. That we would be unified in our, not only the body of believers, our um, intermediate body of believers, our immediate body of believers, but also in the furthering of the kingdom. That we would work alongside other churches um, for the purpose of furthering God's kingdom and growing and knowing him. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't always mean... Uh, perfect agreement, uh, that we can still disagree on tertiary issues, but the, the main thing that Jesus is Lord and that he is to be uh, served and that he is to be worshipped is what we should come alongside in unity. Um, because I, so I, I live with a bunch of guys who aren't believers, and some of their biggest questions are like, oh, like, why are you so different from the Catholic Church? Or like, oh, why are there so many churches um, and this is a stumbling block to them. Although it's ironic because in their own faith, there's a lot of different, um, a lot of diversity, but they're much more strict. Where it's like, oh yeah, all those guys are wrong. Like they're not even close to us. Um, where Christianity, we have a little bit more leeway. You know, we break over when do we baptize or um, other things like that. Uh, but nonetheless, unity is like we we serve a God of not confusion, but also. Uh, it, a God who's united in three persons in one, you know? You think about the Trinity, and I think one of the best sermons I ever heard at a wedding was talking about how the Trinity is in perfect love before the foundations of the world, and, and that marriage is a reflection of that love and Jesus and his bride, um, that they walk in perfect, harmonized unity. And so in the same way, some of our greatest witness can be when we are unified as a body of believers, when there's no disagreements, when there's no gossip or backstabbing, but rather we are of one accord, that we are of one mind. And I know for myself, if someone was asked Alexander a question and he was answered, I have full confidence I would completely agree with everything he would tell that person. 
and and likewise that we serve and walk in one mind and that can be scary at times but at the same time we're very different people so it works out Um, but nonetheless one of our greatest witness one of our greatest gospel presentation can be the unity of a body of believers um, which comes through conforming ourselves to the image of christ laying down self-sacrificing crucifying our flesh just as jesus did um, so that we can be conformed and become more like-minded and thus uh, be a better, stronger, healthier church. Um, and the second point in doing this, the, the byproduct of doing it is first unity, and second is God is glorified. Um, I think, and it says here in verse 6 that, together you may with one voice glorify the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I was told that last week, I might not have been the best singer, and uh, someone, one of the musicians asked if we were singing off, if they were singing off key, and no, it was actually just me in the back singing, and I might have, so it wasn't perfect harmony, and I, in my, being the weaker brother in singing, um, I, I, I didn't throw off the worship service, but it had them concerned that they were in disunity. And so, using what's talking about here in Scripture, that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are in one voice, maybe not singing, but one voice in unison, you know, you think about the harmonizing, and you think, like, man, gospel uh, choirs just move me to tears. Like, like, man, there are a few things more beautiful than a bunch of, like, elderly African-American ladies just singing their hearts out. Um, I think about even, I've been blessed to be able to go to Israel, and there's some churches built from the uh, 12th century, the Byzantine Empire, and the dome is created in such a way that it, it literally sounds like heaven. Like, I have a video I'd love to show you guys, but it sounds like heaven. And even like I'm singing, it sounds like heaven. That's how you know. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's this, this unison that together you may with one voice glorify the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in unison that in unity, God is being glorified. Um, and that comes through the, the self-sacrificing, not pleasing ourselves, not pleasing our own flesh, just as Christ didn't, just as Christ is our example, as we're being conformed into Christ, um, that then we may, we may serve one another and um, love one another. Uh, and you think about, you know, the, the world says to please yourself, like gratify your desires, pursue your dreams, per, like, Pursue the American dream. Give yourself everything you want and more. Um, and that's like the chief end of man. That's what the world would say. And the Westminster um, Confession Catechism says, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? And it says that the answer they give is, uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that comes through the laying down of yourself, displeasing yourself in order to please a brother and sister, to to unify the church, to edify, to build up the church. And thus, like, that's when God's most glorified. That's when he's most magnified. Is when, we, when we limit our freedom for the sake of loving and building up God's bride, you know, like we love your wife as Christ loved the church, as his bride. Like, obviously, every Christian will um, go to heaven when Christ comes back. But Christ is specifically like coming back for his bride, the body of believers. And it's his bride that we must pour our lives into, be committed to, 
love, serve through, you know, just as any marriage covenant, through thick and thin, through good and bad, through sickness and well. Um, is this bride that we must love, serve, and pour into. And so my, I guess, last fancy um, application other than the reflections I give is, so let us be a church that by the grace and power of God willingly lay down our, lays down our lives for the sake of pleasing others just as Christ did so that we may be unified with one mind to glorify the God who is worthy of all things. So would you pray with me? Almighty God, I, I thank you so much that you are um, not a God far away, um, that you hide yourself, Lord, but rather, God, you have humbly uh, stepped into your creation, Lord, to walk alongside man, that you have revealed yourself, that Jesus being um, the incarnation of the Logos, that the scripture can come alive before our eyes, God, and you continuously, Lord, reveal yourself and just clearly um, show yourself to us, God. Um, King Jesus, I thank you so much for the life that you live and the sacrifice that you made uh, for us, God. That is just so clearly shown and taught in Scripture, God. Um, Lord, I pray that we be good stewards of this, that the, the expectations you put upon our lives, the, the calling, the um, asking of obedience, God, I just pray that we would forsake everything else for you, Lord, to be made more like you, to grow in holiness, Lord, that we would take whatever uh, step necessary, God, to achieve that. Um, and Lord, let us just love your bride the way that you do, Lord, um, to care, to protect her, to fight for her, to grow her, to strengthen her, Lord. Um, yeah, God, I, I just pray that you would conform our desires, our image into your son, Lord. Um, and be glorified in and through all things, Lord. So it's in your holy name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.